Well, good morning. We are um, going through the seven letters, as, as some of you guys know, probably many many of you guys know, uh, seven letters of Revelation uh, to the churches. And so today, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Revelation chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be in verses 12 to 17, looking at the church of Pergamum. And uh, I think it was Dave told me this morning, like, if you can say it, that's probably good. Like, if you know how to pronounce the name, then you've probably done your study. So, <laughs> um, done some studying on the church at Pergamum. And um, so we're just going to dive right in. A little bit of history about Pergamum. One, one of the things about the seven letters is that, that it helps to know some historical context about uh, the churches because what's said in these letters, um, the history helps us to understand what it is. And so a little bit about Pergamum. Uh, Pergamum was a major cultural center of the Greek world. Matter of fact, it was the capital city of the Pergamon Empire. It was around uh, 200 BC that King Attalus struck a peace treaty with Rome. Uh, and in return, Rome gave King Attalus control of the area, which today is modern-day uh, Turkey. Uh, later, in about 138 B.C., uh, King Attalus' grandson, King Attalus III, uh, bequeathed the land back to Rome upon his death. And so uh, it was very heavily influenced by the Roman culture. Pergamum was filled with many temples of Greek and Roman gods. Uh, every major deity, it said, uh, had a temple in Pergamum. And so you could pray to whomever, about whatever, whenever, when you were in Pergamum. Imagine a world like that, living where every major deity is represented. Uh, they had a, a throne to Zeus. They called it Zeus's throne, and it was this huge structure. Matter of fact, it was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world that was in Pergamum. Zeus was the god of the sky who was powerful and could do uh, anything. He could do anything by force and by power. Uh, there was a temple to Dionysi Dionysus, the god of wine and revelry, and what that uh, was about was like pleasure and sex and debauchery and things uh, along those lines. There was a temple to the god Demeter, who was the goddess of food um, or provision. There was a temple to Asclepius, uh, who was the god of healing. Uh, Asclepius, now this is going to give some of, you, some of you the heebie-jeebies, but Asclepius would use snakes in healing rituals. And so there was a ritual where you would lay on the ground and all these snakes would just crawl all over you. And it was thought that whatever the snakes did to you would bring healing, right? Everybody, that's kind of creepy. Uh, but today, our medical symbol, if you've seen the medical symbol, what is it? It's a rod with a snake wrapped around it. This is where it came from, was from Asclepius. Uh, there was a temple uh, to the goddess Athena, who was the goddess of wisdom. Uh, so you would pray to Athena when you had a problem that needed to be solved, when you needed some wisdom in your life. There was also uh, the temple uh, of the imperial cult, which was, an, was a temple that paid homage to Caesar. Uh, Caesar was not only the king, but in Roman culture, Caesar was a god. And so Pergamum was the official center for the worship of the emperor. Right, the list could go on and on about all of the, the deities and temples that were in Pergamum. So those are just a handful. But hopefully this kind of gives you an idea of what the climate was like in Pergamum. Uh, lots of worship to what we would say uh, are false gods and idols. And so as we think about just kind of that, that historical context, we dive into the letter. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12, uh, Jesus says this. He says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, right out of the gate in this letter, there's, there's kind of some harsh language here. 
Right? He says to the angel, and as we've talked about, I think in previous weeks that that this word angel means messenger, and it's probably not like a celestial kind of an angel. Uh, that this is probably the person who delivered the message to who the message was delivered to uh, to read the letter to the church. Um, but to that messenger, he says, write this to the church in Pergamum, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, we don't know yet what's going to come, what these words are going to be. We'll find out here in a moment. But based on that introduction, it would seem like that, that maybe Jesus is going to have some harsh things to say to the church at Pergamum. If we back up just a few verses to Revelation chapter 1, uh, starting also in verse 12, it says this, It says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. This is John writing. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, the sun shining in full strength. Now, this is quite the picture of Jesus that, that we're getting uh, here in Revelation. And so he introduces himself to the church of Pergamum as the one who has the sword. Now, think about Rome and how, how Rome kind of ruled the world of, of its day. How did they do it? They ruled it by the sword, right? And so you have Jesus here kind of saying, my sword is bigger than their sword, right? Rome is not, don't worry about Rome, right? Jesus has the biggest sword of all. We're told in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, also verse 12, lots of verse 12s today. Uh, Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so when Jesus is talking about his sword, he's not necessarily talking only about a physical sword. Right? We, we, we know as we, we know how the story ends that, that Jesus is going to come in physical power, right? But, but he's not only talking about a physical sword. His words uh, separate, it says, soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Uh, and Jesus' word cuts us um, in a way that we need to be cut. The words that he has to say are powerful. And so this is the setup to what he's about to say to the church at Pergamum. And then in verse 13 of Revelation 2, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And so he acknowledges to the church at Pergamum, I, I know where you live. I know that you live in this place where there's all this false worship, all of this idolatry that's happening. Uh, I know that you live in a place where Satan's throne is. I mean, again, that's harsh language, big, big language that Jesus is using. So Pergamum is like, it's a big deal to be a Christian in Pergamum if Jesus himself would say, you live in the place where Satan's throne dwells. Right? And then he, then he ends that verse by, again, acknowledging that this is where Satan dwells. But he commends them. He says, in spite of that, in spite of living in this place where it's probably difficult to maintain the Christian faith because of all of the deities that are represented there and all of the false worship that happens, he commends them. He says, yet you hold fast my name. So there were some in the church at Pergamum that remained faithful in spite of where they lived. And in spite of all of the, the pressure, there was much social pressure to engage in the worship of these false gods, uh, which made it even more difficult to maintain 
Christian faith because of this pressure. And so he commends some of them for holding fast his name. He says, yet you did not deny my faith. Here's what I find interesting about this. Jesus didn't tell them, maybe you shouldn't live where Satan's throne is. He, he didn't tell them, maybe you should go somewhere that's not Satan's throne. Maybe you should go somewhere uh, with more conservative values or somewhere uh, where it's not so difficult to live a Christian life. He, he commends them for sticking it through with the difficulties and, and at no point tells them to, to consider relocating. And I think the reason is, is that, that if there were ever a place that needed the influence of Christ, it, it would be Pergamum. And if all of the Christians were to go somewhere else and, and huddle up together, then there would be no Christian influence in Pergamum. And so he commended them for being faithful, living in a place that was very, very difficult to be faithful, living in a time in history where it was difficult to be faithful. And we get a glimpse of how difficult it was. He says, they hold fast his name. They didn't deny his faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Now, we don't know a whole lot about who this guy Antipas was. But according to tradition... In the year 92 AD, St. Antipas uh, was said to have been the first bishop or the first pastor of the church at Pergamum ordained by the Apostle John. And he was a victim of an early clash between Serapis worshipers, another false deity, and Christians. It's said that an angry mob burned him alive in front of a temple in a brazen bull-like incense burner, which represented the bull god Apis. And his martyrdom is one of the first recorded in Christian history. That's about all we know about this guy. And this is just according to tradition. So um, that, that may or may not be entirely true, but this is what tradition tells us about who Antipas was. And, and so Jesus acknowledges the believers at Pergamum, holding fast to his name, not denying his faith when the pastor of their church was pulled out in public and burned in front of the temple of a false god, burned alive. Yet these people... Uh, some of them, anyway, maintained their witness. They maintained their faith. Now, here's what I find particularly interesting about Antipas, just a little bit that we know. Again, if we back up a few verses into Revelation chapter 1, at the very beginning of the letter, uh, starting in verse 4, it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. This word Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, is the same language that he uses to refer to Antipas, the faithful witness. That word witness could also be translated as martyr. Jesus referring to himself as the faithful martyr and referring to Antipas as the faithful martyr. So as little as we know about this guy, Jesus makes a direct comparison of himself and Antipas, who was maybe the epitome of what it means to maintain faith in the place where Satan dwells. He was martyred. He gave his life, it would seem, for his faith. And what is it that we know about Christ? That Christ gave his life in faithfulness to the will and to the plan of the Father. right? And so whoever Antipas was, whatever uh, else he did that we don't know about him, he, he was a faithful witness or a faithful martyr in Pergamum, this place where Satan dwells. One commentator said this about Pergamum. It said that Pergamum was obsessed with a love for the state. Patriotism had crossed the line into idolatry. Now, so far, we might not be able to relate to a whole lot of things about Pergamum. I don't know that any of us would say that Central Oregon is the place where Satan dwells. But, but 
as we learn a little more about Pergamum, maybe this hits a little more close to home. The commentator goes on to say, to not line up enthusiastically with the preeminence and politics of the state was to fail to be a good citizen. Those who failed to join in were dangerous and had to be opposed. Only Caesar is Lord, not this so-called Christ. Christians could follow him, Christ, if they wanted, but society expected that they would not let their Christian convictions get in the way of their public duty to obey the government. Privatized faith was fine in the days of Pergamum, but Christian faith displayed in the public square was not welcomed. Maybe we can relate a little bit more to that because this part maybe isn't too far off from our day, or at least the trajectory that our culture is heading is that it's not a cool thing to display faith in Christ in the public square. It's, It's getting to be less and less so. And this was kind of the case at Pergamum, although they were farther down the trajectory of that uh, probably than we are today. But in verse 14, the letter takes a little bit of a turn. So he's commended them for holding fast his name. He's commended them for not denying the faith, even when it would be difficult, so much so that the pastor of their church was burned alive for everybody to see. But then in verse 14, he says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Pause there for just a moment. So so this is the bad. This is the part where the the Jesus who has the two-edged sword, he's, he's speaking some hard words to them right now. He says that you have some, not all, not all, right? Obviously there are some in the church who are commended. But, but you have some who hold to the teachings of Balaam. Now that name may or may not sound familiar to some of us. In a minute, we'll talk in a minute about who Balaam was. But he taught this guy Balak. Again, may, uh, that may be a name that does or doesn't sound familiar. But he taught this guy Balak, we're told, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. And so Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament who was not faithful to God. He was a prophet who uh, basically was a prophet for hire. So if you paid him enough money, he would kind of swing prophecy in your favor as much as one can even do that. Uh, That's what he did. And he taught Balak, who was a king. Balak was the king of the Moabites. And and just another piece of history, the the Israelites and the Moabites, they, they didn't get along. Um, there's a whole long history to this, but the Moabites came. You might remember uh, a guy named Lot, and Lot had an incestuous relationship with his daughter. And the offspring of that relationship, that became the Moabite people. And so there was a sordid history, to make a really long story short, between the Israelites and the Moabites. And they, they didn't get along at all. Matter of fact, the Israelites had some things in their law that talked about not, not mingling with the Moabites and how the Moabites weren't even permitted uh, to be a part of the assembly. Uh, so this prophet Balaam was hired by King Balak, king of the Moabites, um, to curse the Israelites. And, and Balaam, for some reason, wasn't able to do it. God didn't permit him to do it. So he taught Balak how to put a stumbling block in front of them. And there were, were two stumbling blocks that are called out here in Revelation chapter 2. And those stumbling blocks were that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and that they would practice sexual immorality. In Numbers 25, uh, the first five verses, it says that when Israel lived in Shedem, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. 
These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all of the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, and the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. So, so again, just a little bit that, that we know today about Baal and Balak. This was a big deal to the Lord, what, whatever went down. So much so that he told Moses, like, round up some people and hang them so everybody can see in broad daylight the judgment of God because of this sexual immorality and because of this eating of food that was sacrificed to idols. The apostle Peter tells us in, in his epistle uh, that the way of Balaam was to gain from wrongdoing. And so again, Balaam taught Balak what, what he taught him was a big deal to God. And in citing this historical reference, everybody would have known exactly the point that Jesus was trying to make here because it was a familiar reference. And then after talking about Balaam and Balak, he goes on to say that, so, so you also, in other words, in light of this, you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And we don't know a whole lot about the Nicolaitans. As a matter of fact, we know almost nothing about the Nicolaitans. But it's thought that there was this guy named Nicholas, who was an early Christian. Uh, some theologians uh, contend that he might have even been one of the first deacons appointed in the church in Acts chapter 6. That's debated, but, but some theologians think that that might be possible. But whether that's true or not doesn't so much matter. Uh, but he was an early Christian who later fell into heretical teaching. And in his heretical teaching, he had gained a following. And people that followed Nicholas were known as the Nicolaitans. And so whatever the case is, uh, we're told uh, just in the previous letter, Revelation 2, the letter to uh, uh, Ephesus, uh, Jesus says that, that yet you have this, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So again, whoever the Nicolaitans were, whatever it is that they've done, Jesus hated their works. So lots of strong language. And so He's coming against them or bringing in these charges against him that they've fallen into teachings that were similar to those of Balaam and Balak and the Nicolaitans. And all of this he hates. All of it he hates. He hates the teachings of Balaam and Balak so much that he told Moses to round up people and hang them in broad daylight so that everybody could see God's judgment. Whoever the Nicolaitans were, whatever it is that they've done, we're just told that Jesus hates their works. And so this correlation between Balaam and the Nicolaitans, again, it has to do with eating food sacrificed to idols and practicing sexual immorality. So let's, let's unpack those for just a moment. You might remember from 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, Paul talks about eating food sacrificed to idols. And Paul renders a judgment saying that it's okay, essentially, to eat food sacrificed to idols so long as you don't cause a brother or sister to fall into sin by your, your liberty. And it's important that we understand that what Jesus is talking about is not the same thing that Paul was talking about, okay? What Paul was talking about was that um, in his day that, that they would make sacrifices to these false gods, um, idol worship, and after these sacrifices were done, they would take the meat that, that was burned on an altar and they would take it to the market and they would sell it in the market. And there were some Christians who had no conscience against going to the store and buying this meat, and the idea was that false gods, like they're not real, right? And so the meat doesn't have any bad juju associated with it, so it's okay to buy this meat and to have a meal with it. 
And there were other Christians that would say, yeah, you shouldn't be doing that, right? That's, that's not a big thing. And so this is where Paul renders the judgment saying, really, it's not a big deal. But if it causes your brother or your sister to fall into sin because of your liberty, just, just don't do it, okay? What was happening here in Pergamum is that Christians were engaging in the worship of false gods. They were eating this meat sacrificed to idols as worship to false gods. So it's a way different scenario, right? Way different scenario. They were participating in full-blown idolatry, right? Some that would profess Christ, they would profess faith in Christ, claim to be Christians, and they were participating in full-blown idolatry or the worship of false gods. So it's a completely different scenario. The same thing with, with the charge of sexual immorality. It wasn't just that, that people in the church were, were living loosely with their sexual morality or immorality, whatever the case may be, but it's that they were participating in sexual immorality, again, as worship to these false gods. Right? Some of what happened inside the temple had to do with acts of sexual immorality as worship uh, to these idols. And so you had people in the church that were participating uh, in a couple of different specific ways, just in the full-blown worship of false gods. Not just that they were living loosely, not that they had someone had looser morals than you, but that they were participating in false worship. Maybe another way to think about this is that some in the church professing to be Christians didn't look all that different from those who are outside the church living in this place where it's said that Satan dwells. And that doesn't compute. That doesn't compute because people in the church, people who who profess faith in Christ ought to look different than those who don't profess faith in Christ. And that just makes sense, right? That, That we would look a little bit different. And so in light of this, in light of these charges uh, that Jesus is bringing against the church, in verse 16, he says, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, So Jesus commends some for holding fast to his name, some for not denying the faith in a place where it would be really difficult to not deny the faith. And then he brings charges against others who simultaneously have one foot in the church and one foot in the world and in the culture of the day. Some who simultaneously profess faith in Christ and engage in the worship of false gods. And and again, we might have a hard time relating to this in our culture today because we, we don't have temples that represent deities here but, but think about some of the, the false idols that we might worship in our lives. What, what does that look like in 2021 uh, in the West, uh, in America? What, what kind of false idols do we have? So some of us, we have a false idol of, of a career. Career is not a bad thing at all. But, but some of us worship our careers, right? Uh, some of us worship our retirement. Again, retirement is not, not a bad thing. If you've worked hard in your life and you've gotten to the point where you don't have to do that anymore, good for you. Um, I think I'm on the 137-year the plan for retirement for me. Like I don't, it's not in sight. So if you're there, good for you. But but some of us, we, we worship our retirement, don't we? John Piper talks about uh, what a waste of retirement it is to spend your time on the beach collecting seashells when you could be out doing work in the name of Christ and bringing people to Christ, right? So we worship our retirement. Some of us, we we worship uh, a false idol of relationships, right? Spouses, family, friends, whatever it is. We Again, good things that God gives us, 
but but we can make those things um, into false gods. And, and it, maybe you're thinking it's a stretch to think of these things as false gods, but but think about all of the effort and all of the energy we expend sometimes in our lives in the direction of a career or in the direction of retirement or in the direction of relationships. Some, sometimes we're willing to sacrifice anything and everything for those things. And again, good things that God gives us, but, but we can easily elevate those to a place that God never intended them to be. And so as we think about the church of Pergamum and the charges that, that Jesus himself, the one with the two-edged sword, is bringing against Pergamum, on a really broad level, it's that the, the, some in the church didn't look a whole lot different than those who weren't a part of the church. Some in the church didn't look a whole lot different than those in the world. And this causes me, and hopefully you, this causes me to consider my life. Does, does my life look a whole lot different than people who don't profess faith in Christ? Some days I might say my life looks way different. Other days I might say, nah, not all that different. And so Jesus doesn't just stop there with, with these charges. He gives them an opportunity by calling them to repentance. And repentance is just, it's a, it's a Bible word that we use that means I, I was going this way and now I'm going to turn and go this way. Like it's a 180 degree turn. I was running towards sin and now I'm running towards Christ. That's what it means to repent is to turn and go the opposite direction. In other words, he's saying, for those of you in the church who are participating in full-blown idol worship, stop it. Don't do that anymore. Turn and go the other way. Because the alternative, he says, is that if you don't stop, if you don't repent, he says, I'm going to come to you soon and war against you with the sword of my mouth. And if there's anybody that you don't want to war against, it's Jesus. Right? His, his sword is bigger than your sword. His sword is bigger than Rome's. His sword is bigger than your sword. That's not a battle that any of us is going to win. Going to war against the creator of the universe. We're not going to win. We're not going to win that war. And thankfully, Jesus doesn't just wipe us out when we sin, right? He, he's calling those in the church to repentance. He's calling those who, who look a whole lot like the world, he's calling them to repentance and giving them an opportunity to say, I don't want to go to war with you, Jesus. And then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear. And looking around the room, I see everybody has ears. And so he's basically saying, everybody pay attention. Everybody pay attention to this. This is, this is for everyone to hear. This is even for the ones who he commended for, for not denying the faith and holding fast his name. This is for them to hear too. Right? This is for the faithful and this is for the less than faithful to hear this call to repentance. And he, he's speaking, he says, he, which is singular, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. And what we can take from this is that this is something that's meant for, for the church in all of time and history to hear. He singular who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, right? Let him hear what the Spirit has to say to everyone. Then he says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone so that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now we've got to do a little bit of work to kind of unpack what he's saying here as well. So if you heed the call to repentance, if you turn from your sin, if you turn from the worship of false gods, if you turn from your idolatry, if you hear the call to repentance and you respond positively to that call, there's a couple of things that are going to happen. One, he's going to give you a white stone. And again, this probably doesn't mean a whole lot 
to us today what this white stone is. Or back up, hidden manna. I skipped ahead in my notes. He's gonna, he talks about this hidden manna. You might, you might remember in the Old Testament, the Israelites wandered through the desert for a number of years. And if you know the story, you know that every morning they would wake up, they would, they would pull open the flap of their tent, and they would see this manna on the ground. And it was their food. It was their daily provision. And the mandate to them was to just go out and collect enough for the day. You don't have to store up days or weeks of this stuff because it's going to be here tomorrow. Right? It's going to be there every day. So just go out and collect enough for the day. And if you collected more than enough for the day, it would go bad. And so the mandate was to just collect what you need for your family for today. And the idea here is that, that God is their provider. God is providing for the children of Israel. And he's providing to the point where they have satisfaction. They don't, they don't have a lack. Right in this command to just just scoop up what you need for the day, it's that you're going to have enough. You're going to be provided for. You're going to be taken care of. You're going to be satisfied. And so, in Jesus making this reference to this hidden manna, he, he's telling these people in the church who have engaged in the worship of false gods by participating in the eating of food sacrificed to idols as an act of worship. He, he's saying, worship me. Worship me because these false idols are not going to provide for you in the way that I can provide for you. These false idols are not going to satisfy you in the way that I can satisfy you. And so this call to repentance is that if you heed the call, if you have an ear and you hear and you heed the call to repentance and you go from this way to that way, that that's going to include you getting your provision and getting your satisfaction. And I want to be careful here not not to sound like we're preaching a message of, of prosperity, that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and happy and all. That's not what he's saying here. Jesus is saying that these false idols are never going to deliver to you what I deliver to you. They're never going to provide or satisfy you the way that I can satisfy you. Right? Glenn talked about this morning during sharing time that, that the way to get is to give, right? Is, is that we worship God. And we glorify God in our lives and we pray to God and we acknowledge his goodness and we acknowledge his sovereignty. And then there's satisfaction that comes from acknowledging those things. I need in my own life to remind myself occasionally, and by occasionally I mean a lot, that, that God is sovereign. I just need to tell myself God's in control. There's nothing out there in the entirety of the universe that God doesn't control. And he controls the things that happen in my life. And so I have I have this hidden manna that brings provision to me and brings satisfaction to me. And this is what, what Jesus is saying, that, that he's going to provide for the one who heeds the call and repents. And then he talks about this white stone. <clears throat> now there's some debate exactly to what this white stone was, but it seems like the majority of of theologians talked about this white stone serving as a pass for admission. So if you were invited to a fancy dinner, you'd have a white stone and that white stone would have your name on it. When you showed up at the fancy dinner, you would give them this white stone and that would, that would let you in. And if you didn't have one of those white stones, you couldn't get in, right? You couldn't get into the door um, of the event. And so it was your pass for admission. It's what gave you access and what Jesus is saying here is to the one who repents, the one who, who turns from the worship of false idols, that he's going to give you an access that false idols will never give you. We, we live in a, in a culture that more and more is preaching a message of universalism that says all roads will get you there. But that wasn't a real popular message in society not all that long ago. 
but that's becoming more and more of a mainstream message. You have your road to God, I have my road to God. The Bible tells us there, there's one road and, and it's pretty narrow, right? Most people are, aren't going to be on the road. But our culture is saying that all roads will get you there, and that, that's a fallacy. It's not true. And Jesus is saying to the one who heeds the call, to the one who repents, he's going to give this white stone, and this white stone is representative of your faith in Christ, which is your, your access to heaven, your access to him. And if that's not cool enough that he would provide for you a white stone, that he's going to write on this stone a name that, that's only known by him. He's going to give you a name that's only known by him, and this speaks of an intimacy. Right? Think about spouses who have pet names for each other. Nobody else calls them by those pet names except for spouses, right? Pet names bug me, so if you have a pet name for your spouse, I'm sorry. But but this is kind of what it's like. That there, There's a name sometimes that spouses can call one another that nobody else uses except those spouses. I had the privilege yesterday of doing a vow renewal for a couple that had these pet names for one another. And nobody else calls them by those names. And as they renewed their vows, they used their pet names for each other in their vow renewal. Because there's an intimacy there in their relationship. And they, they celebrated 30 years. And they've had these pet names for 30 years that they've called each other by. It was a cool thing. And so to the one who heeds the call to repent, you're, you're going to get a white stone. And it's going to have a name on it that only Jesus knows you by that name. Nobody else calls you by that name. And so there's an intimacy there that, that you will have with Christ that nobody else has. And these this hidden manna and this white stone with, with a name on it are only available to the ones who heed the call to repent. Only available to the ones who have an ear and hear what Christ and his two-edged sword is saying to the churches the ones who turn from the worldly ways, turn from false worship of false gods, and, and turn to Christ, worshiping the one and only true God. And so, as we close this, I would ask you to consider, like I've considered for myself in this, uh, just consider your life. Consider your life and how it looks compared to those outside the church. Romans chapter 12, the first two verses, the Apostle Paul says this, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul spends in the book of Romans 11 chapters lining out the truth of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're all, we're all we're great sinners, and Christ is a great Savior. Spends two-thirds of the letter, making that known. And then as he gets into chapters 12, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore. In other words, in light of the truth of the gospel, in light of who Jesus is, and in light of what Jesus has done, there's a response that makes sense. And there's only one response that makes sense. He says, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. If it's true what Christ has done for us, if it's true that we're great sinners, and if it's true that he's a great savior, the only response that would make sense is that we would offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, not to false idols who, who can't deliver, but, but to the God who did for us what we could and would never do for ourselves. And the Apostle Paul tells us that this is holy and this is acceptable to God, and it's your spiritual act of worship, or depending on your translation, you, your translation might say this is your reasonable act of worship. 
In other words, it, it just makes sense in light of the truth of the gospel that we would give everything that we have and all of who we are to Christ. And if we don't do that, then maybe maybe we don't believe the gospel. And then he gives this call to not be conformed to this world. This is what was happening at the church at Pergamum, is that, that little by little the church at Pergamum was becoming conformed to the world. Not everybody in the church was yet conformed to the world, but but the trajectory of this church is that it was becoming more and more conformed by the world and by the culture of its day. And the Apostle Paul says that we we combat that by being transformed and having our minds renewed. And this is something that we cannot do for ourselves. That we do this by the mercy of God. This happens to us by the mercy of God. And as this happens, that we're going to be able to test and discern what is the will of God. And so as we're living in a Pergamum-like culture, we're going to be able to say, that's a false idol. That's a false God. That false worship is not going to get me anywhere. We're going to be able to discern these things. We're not told in our text today that, that people in the church were not discerning, but it's kind of a reasonable thing to assume that they weren't able to discern what was true and what was not true. And so our ability to be transformed, our ability to discern, our ability to even offer our bodies or our lives as living sacrifices, that, that only comes as the work of Christ in us. That's not like, you can't go out here today and think, okay, I'm, I'm going to be a living sacrifice and just work hard to do. You're going to... You're not going to make it very far before that doesn't work anymore. This is the work of Christ. And so as we consider our lives, as we consider whether our lives look all that different as those inside the church from those outside the church, that that we would pray to God and ask God for help in this because I can't make my life look all that different. Sometimes I don't even want to. And so we need the help of God so that we don't make the same mistake as those in Pergamum of falling into um, the worship of false idols and false gods who ultimately aren't going to deliver. So again, consider your life and consider how you would pray to God and what you would ask him for help for as those inside the church, as those who are followers of Christ, that we would be able to live lives, not that look like the world, but that shine the light of the gospel brighter and brighter as things get more and more difficult. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for today. Thankful that you love us and thankful that uh, that you call us to repentance and that, that you don't just uh, judge us immediately upon our sin, but that you give us an opportunity to turn from our sin and to come back to you. And so I would pray for all of us this morning that we uh, would be people that eagerly turn from our sin and eagerly run to you, knowing that we can find forgiveness only in you. God, help us collectively um, as the church as a church, help us collectively uh, that we would be able to live lives that, that would point to what a great Savior that you are. And that as we scatter throughout the week and as we, we go into the world, as we go into our homes and as we go into our neighborhoods and as we go into our workplaces and as we go into the community, that collectively we would be able to shine the light of the gospel in the way that we live and in the things that we say so that people would know uh, that they too could repent and turn to you. We can't do this without your help, and so, God, we ask it today, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.